Here we are from beautiful, sunny China. Oh, it's oh, oh, it's acid raining. Open up your still umbrella. That's better. We were kindly invited by the president of the Republic of China. We can't pronounce his name, but he's a big fan of L.A. Meekly, and he's asked us to participate in the ceremonial dragon fight of the Lunar New Year Parade. I'm the throat. I think I see our challenger now. Greg, that's a real dragon. I see him. How'd they get a real one? Don't move. He can't see you if you don't move. What do we do? Let's open up our fortune cookies and see. Mine says... People are naturally attracted to you. See, I told you. Not now. I'm just saying. What's yours? Mine's empty. I want another one. One per customer. Grab a firework. That's a firecracker. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, light it. Wow. Wow. Well, it missed, but it was in the shape of two pandas dancing. So tune in next month when your new host will be Fung Lao, the dragon from Mongolia. We already did an episode on bank robberies. Hello! Great. Or should I say, Ni Hao? You should certainly say Ni Hao. Ni hao. Ni hao, Greg. Ni hao, and welcome to episode 15 of LA Meekly. I am Daniel. I'm Greg. I'm glad we sorted that out. We have a pile of mail here. We don't know who gets what. <laughs> we have a pile of emails here on the table. <laughs> <laughs> we printed them all out and put them in envelopes. <laughs> we had our intern do that. 15 episodes in, and we're finally getting to one thing that should have been talked about a long time ago, probably. Me? Um, it's kind of about your outfit right now. We've, <laughs> I've been waiting 15 months to address it, but it's pretty humiliating. I mean, I come on, cool. Greg. White after Labor Day? I'm a rebel. I'm a fashion rebel. A white leather jacket after <laughs> after Labor Day. It's got little black spots on it. I look like a cow. We promised that we would never do an outdated episode again, but we completely overlooked. Look, we don't go by the lunar calendar when we when we program this this program. So we missed it. We're a little bit late again. We promise it won't happen again. But if it does, don't worry about it. Leave it in a review. <laughs> There's still a five star a- review. <laughs> about how much you love it when we leave things out. The it's okay because the air still smells of firecracker. So <laughs> there's still confetti in the gutters of Chinatown. So technically by emperor law it's still New Year. In case you haven't picked up on it this episode is about Chinatown. The film? I really like the part where where Faye Dunaway's in it. Before he calls that guy a dumb okey. Really love that. <laughs> I part. really like the part where Faye Dunaway 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 that's enough of that. <laughs> <laughs> that idea died really quickly. <laughs> Doing research for this episode brought us and brought me, anyways, ideas for at least like four other episodes because it's so inter- it's so interconnected because it's such a big part of LA that you're like, oh, we have to be talking about this. And so you know, if we hadn't talked about it already, we're going to be addressing things that we haven't discussed already yeah. because of this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. What is a Chinese person? <laughs> Where could they possibly come from? Am I Chinese? Well, by the end of this, we'll find out. I can tell you now, no. <laughs> if you're listening to this, you're probably not Chinese. And that's my Chinese Jeff Foxworthy routine. 
You know you're Chinese when you're from China. When all the other members of your family are Chinese. <laughs> when you have a last name that's might be Wong, might be something like that. You might be Chinese. I'm just saying. Pretty racy stuff. Factual, but racy. So the first Chinese people came to California when the gold rush happened in 1848. They called this general area of the U.S. Gumsan, which means gold mountain. Oh, okay. That's just the first of many words in Chinese that we're gonna offensively mispronounce yet again. I really wish that they kept that name and we lived at Gold Mountain or Gumson. Or Gumson. You ever chewed Gumson?、Mm. Their plan was to come to the country, strike it rich in gold, and then bring all the money back home. Problem was, not that many people actually struck it very rich in the gold rush,、mm-hmm. especially not Chinese people. Because once the amount of gold being found started to dwindle, the U.S. government wanted to keep the money in the family. So in 1850, they instigated the foreign miners tax, which made non-U.S. citizens pay twenty dollars a month, which is about five hundred dollars in today's、oh、dollars, to just to dig, dig it, dig it, man, dig it, man. Well, don't if you're Chinese. <laughs> Because it's a lot of money. People were pretty quick to get them to stop that tax because it's ridiculous, and people just didn't care if foreigners were finding gold. I have a f- feeling that's not true. Well, it, they just didn't want Chinese people finding gold. Oh, okay. So in 1852, another law came out that made only Chinese miners. Oh my God! To pay two dollars a month in order to dig. Wait until you hear what happens to the Chinese people. We should focus all our racism. I'm tired of spreading it around. We should focus on one group of people. <laughs> Things only got worse from there for the Chinese, and here it comes. Oh boy! <laughs> this is basically just, my Kevlar on.、Yeah, this is just a laundry list of how Chinese people were mistreated. So the Chinese population in California was centered around San Francisco. Because it was much closer to the gold rush action, but some of them started to make their way south. So the first census that came out after California became a state in 1850 showed that there were two Chinese people living in Los Angeles,、mm-hmm. two house servants named Ah Fu. Well, you tracked it down two people. That's pretty remarkable. And Ah Loose.、Mm-hmm. I am remarkable. <laughs> So the marked on that. <laughs> the Chinese people that came to LA in the early days, they usually didn't come straight from China. The people that were coming to LA were coming from other parts of California.、Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of movement between the Chinese in LA and San Francisco. By 1859, there were Chinese fishermen working off of Catalina Island. The 1860 census showed 14 Chinese people living in LA, and in the 1870 census, out of the 5,723 residents in LA, 234 of them were Chinese. Half of these people lived on a street called. Here we go. Oh, this I've been waiting a month to hear this. <laughs> I've been working up the courage to pronounce this. Oh boy, Calle de los Negros, <laughs> which yes, at this time was turning out to be the epicenter of what was turning into something of a Chinatown. So now let's talk about this horribly offensive street for a little <laughs> bit. It was between El Pueblo Plaza and Old Arcadia Street, which is that alley that's next to the old firehouse that's、oh, there. Okay, yeah. Calle de los Negros. The people who spoke English in town would refer to it as. N-word alley.、Oh, okay. Only they did not pronounce it as politely as that. <laughs> it, wow, that's、uh, that's vicious.、Uh, it's absolutely dirty and horrible. <laughs> it was called such not because black people lived there. But because the Spanish people who lived there had darker skin than the other Spanish people、That's、living elsewhere、lazy. in the city, yeah, that is lazy <laughs> on the part of racists. Oh, you're saying、day. Spanish people are lazy? <laughs> oh, 
the Kaye, which is what I'm going to call it from now on, because I cannot, That's... I need to take four showers when I get home tonight. But it's not real, man. <laughs> the Kaye was no longer than 500 feet and no wider than 50 feet. But between 1850 and 1856, it was the most dangerous place in the country. They called it the wickedest street on earth. Ooh. It stung the nostrils of all decent people. It was lined up and down with saloons and dives and brothels. In 1853, the average violent death rate in LA was one death per day, and all of this emanated from the Calle. Oh my God, it was like execution alley. <laughs> in March of 1855, there were five homicides in 24 hours on the Calle, but the victims were of a class that could well be spared, so the city never Ooh. really did much to clean it up. Yeah. I don't like the way that was phrased, but it was quite eloquent. Hey, I didn't phrase it this way. <laughs> Talk to my lawyer. Okay. <laughs> Kurt? Yeah. <laughs> Kurt Kaye. Kurt Kaye. So in 1877, the city finally renamed it Los Angeles Street. Oh. Uh, yeah, Los Angeles, as you know and love. Yeah, as I Los love Angeles, to park on, yeah. yeah. So this was where the city's first Chinatown started. It was a Chinatown, but a lot of Mexican and Japanese people lived there too. After the gold rush, a lot of Chinese people started working on the railroads all the live long day, where they were given the most dangerous jobs, such as placing dynamite. Oh, wow. But once the transcontinental railroads were finished in 1869, they needed to find new work. So this started the focus on the Sai Dai Quen or the four big businesses. The first big business was the laundry business. Mm -hmm. During the gold rush, there were so few women around that were running laundries, which made the laundry prices so expensive that it was cheaper to ship the dirty laundry from California to Hawaii, <laughs> and sometimes even to China itself, and have it done there and sent back. So the Chinese people in California apparently were the only ones who saw how ridiculous this was. <laughs> so they took it as an opportunity. And since it was very inexpensive to start a laundry business, because all you really had to buy was soap and they could do it out of their own homes, they started doing this. So wow. they were extremely successful businesses and the city hated them for it. So in 1872, LA passed a $5 tax on laundry businesses. Awesome. So there were 15 Chinese laundries at the time and most of them refused to pay. So they were arrested and chose <laughs> the alternate option of five days in jail. But that didn't stop them at all. That didn't stop those Chinese. The peak of the Chinese laundry boom was in 1890 with 52 Chinese run laundries that employed a total of 500 Chinese peach wow. people. The second big business was agriculture. Many of the early Chinese to come to California were from the Xiup province mm -hmm. where a lot of people were farmers and by coincidence the climate was similar to that of LA so it was an easy choice to get some agriculture going. So there were Chinese vegetable farms in Watts, Linwood, Compton, Wilmington, and San Pedro. Most of the selling was originally done out of carts around the Olvera Street Plaza and at the horse stables that they had down by the LA riverbed. And by the 1870s they were the dominant vegetable sellers in town. So if you wanted to eat your vegetables you had to come through the Chinese. And nobody wanted too. <laughs> Little boys are running away. <laughs> the original reprimand to children was eat your vegetables, support the Chinese. <laughs> there was pins made. But they were pins of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> you had to eat the pins. There were stronger people back then. <laughs> Every kid was a little tougher than they are now. Made sandpaper. Go ahead. So yet again, the Chinese were getting too successful for LA's liking. So in 1878, the city tried to pass laws to get Chinese vegetable sellers to buy permits, but the vendors striked. And since the city was so dependent on the Chinese for getting their vegetables, the city was forced to back down. The Chinese vegetable sellers showed their might again in 1886 when the LA Trades and Labor Council started an anti-Chinese boycott, but the vegetable sellers counter-boycotted 
and stopped providing the city with vegetables Ooh. and forced the racist union to back down. While chil- yeah, children <laughs> everywhere rejoiced. <laughs> in 1880, out of the 60 registered vegetable sellers in the city, 50 of them were Chinese. Wow. By 1894, there were 104 licensed Chinese vegetable sellers. And by 1900, a fourth of all Chinese men in the city were working in agriculture. So in response to the city growing and people needing designated spaces where they could get all their goods, the Hughes market was opened up in 1901 at 9th and Los Angeles. I just realized, is that Hughes, like the old soup? Do you think that's connected to the old supermarket? I was just Hughes? thinking the same thing. I'm trying, to th- I'm trying to think of the logo in my head. It's a cartoon of a Chinese person holding a vegetable. Do you think that's connected? It can't be. No, impossible. There's no connection there. It's also called the Ralph's Market now. But first it was the Howe's Market for a little bit. Is it Hughes? Hughes, like Howard Hughes Market. Howard Hughes Market? <laughs> it's mostly just pee in a jar. Pee and fingernails. <laughs> it, could, it could be connected. It might be. Uh, well, bonus, bonus episode. episode. Oh, oh, Jinx, you owe me a bonus episode. <laughs> I'll just step outside and work on a bonus episode. You wrap this up. So it was so successful, this market, Howard Hughes Vegetable mar- Market, it was so successful that it kept growing and a separate market dedicated completely just to vegetables was opened in 1903 called the Los Angeles Market Company at 3rd and Central. Okay. Is that the Los Angeles Market? <laughs> so things were going well for a while, but in 1909, there was a dispute between the vendors and the people who owned the market. So the place splintered into two different markets. There was the new Los Angeles Market Company on 6th and Alameda. Ooh. And then City Market Ooh. on 9th and San Pedro. Sold. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's a market. So City Market... Idiot? What did that even mean? God, you're dumb. So City Market was started by a Chinese-American named Louis Kwan, but it was a place not just for Chinese vendors, but also for white vendors and Japanese vendors. It opened on April 3rd, 1909, and as many of the workers there were Chinese, grocery stores started to spring up around that area that were catering to what Chinese people liked. Mm -hmm. So this started to draw people who were living in Chinatown, but worked at City Market to move to this area. And effectively, it created a sort of second smaller Chinatown in the nearby area and stretching into the East Adams area. It was more of a Chinese suburb as opposed to the urban squalor that was Chinatown. (laughs) Some families, they even had their own houses as opposed to the multifamily tenements or Bao Wong Lo that people were living in in real Chinatown. It was like a Springfield shell rivalry between the two places. <laughs> what a perfect way to put it. <laughs> so they had sports teams that would play against each other, like the Guardsmen and the Wakus and a Cathay team, during which games people would uh, watch and yell racial slurs okay. at the players, of course. My favorite kind of games is where I can go and just yell that at people. <laughs> you know That's what I the really game. Get? So City Market got so successful that it grew three blocks to the south up towards 12th Street and one block west stretching to Wall Street. So it did so well that the white shareholders in that market knew that they wouldn't be able to force out the Asians that they had planned to do for so long. So many of the white shareholders pulled out and went to the much wider honky-tonk Los Angeles market company. Boring. Which put the city market in a serious spot where they needed to come up with $70,000 to keep them open. Sounds like, a, sounds like a movie I'd watch. Wait till you hear this is the best part of the whole story. They were saved at the last moment by the Asparagus Association. <laughs> the AA? <laughs> Yet again, another another last minute salvation by the Asparagus Association. I think I came to the wrong AA. It's not what I was thinking it was. The asparagus Association. They had their own association. Yeah, they got a whole 12-step program. <laughs> 12 step to the perfect uh, casserole. 
The third step is salt. The Chinese workers at the market had tough lives. They would wake up at 2 a.m. and then work 18-hour days. Jeez. So stop complaining. They're, yeah, you, <laughs> listener. I see what you're doing. You think you're tired listening to this? Imagine after- being Chinese. Imagine being Chinese and having to listen to this. So their main competition in the vegetable game were the Japanese, who were equally adept at farming. The best thing to happen to the Chinese vegetable sellers was Executive Order 9066 on February 19th, 1942, when all the Japanese, in in case you forgot, when all the Japanese in the city got shipped off to Santa Anita Racetrack and the Tuna Can Camp, uh, refer to episode monsters. (laughs) All of a sudden, the Chinese had no vegetable competition. So things were good for the Chinese. On the other hand, this was arguably the worst thing ever to happen to Japanese <laughs> vegetable sellers. It was a time of great prosperity for the Chinese vegetable sellers, and they, along with the white farmers, were buying up all the abandoned Japanese land. So the city market Chinese community, it lasted a while. But once the Chinese population started to move around later on, and the Japanese came back after the war, the Chinese community there started to disperse. And by 1952, there were only 25 Chinese families left in that area. So the market itself is no longer there, but there's a lot of fabric and flower markets in the area. Mm-hmm. But if you sniff really hard, you can still smell bok choy. God, I don't like you. <laughs> What's that smell? I broke my nose trying to smell. Okay, so now back to the big four businesses. Third big business, restaurants. I thought you were going to say wrestling. Restaurants? The fourth one is wrestling. Thanks for spoiling <laughs> we're gonna- We'll get to it. I like Chinese food. You like Chinese food. It's okay. Everyone. <laughs> All right. So there's three big businesses. According to Greg, there's three big businesses. A lot of Chinese restaurants open up to cater to people's curiosity of mm-hmm. what were Chinese people eating. The fourth big business satisfied an even greater curiosity, gambling. So Chinatown was full of gambling houses. And if you give a town a place to gamble, they're probably going to ask for an opium den. (laughs) And while you're at it, throw in some saloons. So Chinatown became LA's red light district. It contained a third of all the city's saloons were in Chinatown. White people were repulsed by the squalor of Chinatown, but it was where they went when they wanted pleasure. Because if you're going to dig into your vice, you want to go somewhere really seedy to do it. Not in my backyard your backyard. (laughs) So the central avenue of all this sinfulness was called Sanchez Street, which was one block west of the calle. This was the place to get Chinese prostitutes. (laughs) Oh, did I mention they had prostitutes? No, but you kind of figured. Many of them. Yeah, come on. You're doing opium. They go hand in hand. Literally. Yeah, because you... You got to hold their hands. So prostitution was a big thing. Eventually, the city banned it in 1909, but not in Chinatown. Anything goes. Chinatown was mostly a bachelor community because most of the original immigrants from China were men. The first Chinese woman came to L.A. in 1859. But and not- she married everybody. <laughs> she was the Chinese woman. <laughs> not many women followed her. A Chinese woman was a rare sight if you saw one in Chinatown. And it was probably best that way because most of the women who did come over didn't so much come over as were kidnapped. <laughs> So the early Chinese women in L.A. had mostly either been kidnapped or otherwise tricked into coming. And once they arrived, they were sold as slaves or indentured sex servants for terms that could last four years. And the local police would help this human trafficking because they knew that people liked it and they were customers. (laughs) And they were monsters. If one of the women would escape, the young LAPD and other (laughs) men of the law would track her down and collect the reward that was offered for her freedom. (laughs) 
1875, the U.S. tried to put a stop to this behavior with the Page Act, which made it illegal to bring Chinese women into the country for the purpose of prostitution or slaves or anything like that. That wasn't a law already? No, why would it be? (laughs) What do you mean? Why would Chinese women have rights prior to 1875? That just doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. So with this, though, it kind of spread to basically no Chinese women allowed, which led to there being even more single Chinese men that actually encouraged prostitution further. So not all the Chinese were working these low-level jobs like this. No offense to farmers, laundry people, restaurateurs, and prostitutes in the 1800s. Some of the city's Chinese residents were attorneys. Some of them were dentists and doctors. Some of course worked in hollywood <laughs> show business greg the show business the show me business show me the money show- God damn it. business <laughs> so even if the people of la as a whole didn't like chinese culture hollywood did yeah. prime example the chinese theater which uh oh, at, i never thought about that. at long last is now finally owned by chinese people it's funny comedy <laughs> humor irreverent edgy sensual offensive Cancelled. <laughs> Rebooted <laughs> by a dragon. <laughs> so in most of the early movies, Chinese characters would for the most part be played by white actors in yellow face. But there were a few Chinese actors who were able to break through. People like Chai Hong, who started out as a bellhop as the Alexandria Hotel, which is still there downtown. We really? like to look at that sometimes. And became an actor many referred to as the Celestial Comedian or the Chinese Chaplain. Mm. He had recurring roles as a character named Charlie, who looked a lot like Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> uh, another guy, James Wong Howe. Yeah. You know him? Yeah. Yeah, he's Famous, you should. Uh, I know him. I know him before. He was an actor? I thought he was a cinematographer. No, no, no. He was a cinematographer. You're right. And he also owned the Ching Hao restaurant at 11386 Ventura Boulevard in North Hollywood, because I guess he didn't make enough money from (laughs) cinematography, even though he was nominated for 10 Oscars and he won twice. The first Chinese vaudeville performer was Li Tung Fu, who would tour the country and would sing opera solos and do Scottish accents. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. I, I would love it. to see that. There were a bunch of Chinese actors who got work in the Charlie Chan movies, mm-hmm. but the most important one to us in LA was Anna May Wong. Woo! Not Anna May Wong. Anna May Wong. Three words. Yeah. What are names? Well, no, it's one word. Anime Wong. Anime Wong. She was born Wong Liu Song on January 3rd, 1905 on Flower Street in our very city, mm-hmm. Baltimore. She grew up in Chinatown and would see the film crews shooting movies on Marsha Salt Street, yes. which is right near the laundry that her parents owned. And she decided that she wanted to act. So she would beg the film crews for parts in the movies so much that they eventually referred to her as CCC or Curious Chinese Child. They loved alliteration. They loved it. And racism. Couldn't get enough of it. Eventually, she did get to act in several movies. In 1921, she was in Bits of Life, co-starring with Lon Chaney Sr. Connections. So in 1922, she got a starring role in The Troll of the Sea, which was the first color feature made in Hollywood, and she was the star of it. In 1924, she was in The Thief of Baghdad with Douglas Fairbanks, the husband of Mary Pickford, and she became an international star. Not Mary Pickford, but her also. <laughs> Anime Wong was the most famous Asian actor outside of Asia. In 1927, she was at the groundbreaking ceremony of the Chinese theater along with Charlie Chaplin himself. She put the first rivet 
in the structure, really, in the ground. That's amazing. So, so unfortunately, Hollywood was set on making Chinese characters in movies usually be evil villains or otherwise some sort of helpless idiot. So she was starting to get typecast, which she hated. So in 1928, she moved to Europe to do some acting there. But then Hollywood started to promise her better things, a la F. Scott Fitzgerald and <laughs> William Faulkner. So in 1930, she moved back to L.A., but those parts never came. Boy. She was in Shanghai Express with mm-hmm. Marlene Dietrich yeah. in 1932. But in 1935, when MGM was making The Good Earth, they chose a white actor in Yellowface over her, the most famous Chinese actor in town. <laughs> Paul Moody. Not the comedian. <laughs> she spent most of the rest of her life fighting for positive portrayals of Chinese people in movies, which never really panned out even to this day. She herself appeared in 72 movies and TV shows, and she died February 2nd, 1961 in Santa Monica. The reason for the negative portrayals of Chinese people in movies, you ask? racism. Okay. That's your answer. Thanks. What's the 1%? Financial reasons. They can't back them. No. Because of the racism, though, so it's really 100%. When the Chinese people first came to California, people really didn't have a fundamental problem with them. It was a sudden shift when in the 1860s, an anti-Chinese sentiment was cultivated by politicians and labor unions telling people to hate the Chinese. Why did they do this? Because Chinese people were willing to work long hours for low pay and the people in charge who had the job security of white people in mind did not like that. Does that sound familiar to you? (laughs) They took all the dirty jobs that white people didn't want to do and they looked down on them for that. They were accused of stealing jobs from the whites. People hated them because they wouldn't assimilate. But how could they when they were being treated so horribly by the people that they were supposed to be acting like? They were blamed for other people's economic problems. They saw the Chinese gangsters, who I'll get to soon, as representative of all Chinese people. So they lumped regular people in with these low lives. A lot of it had to do with nativism also, which is absurd since the rest of them got there just a few years earlier. (laughs) Also, the Chinese population kept growing and people started to worry that eventually there'd be so many of them that they'd elect a Chinese governor. Could you imagine? What's next? Racial stuff to come out of Greg's mouth? (laughs) What's next? The dragon hosting a podcast? (laughs) And with all the gambling and the horse stables that were down there, the city segregated the area even further. All of this led to a neglect for Chinatown itself. The city didn't get around to giving it basic services like plumbing and proper street lighting for years. The streets of Chinatown didn't get paved until 1930. The Chinese weren't allowed to own property either. So the residents of the buildings that they were living in, like I said, they're tenements basically. Mm -hmm. They were not in charge of maintaining them. So they started to decay and the whole area started to look run down. Chinatown was a ghetto basically. And the Chinese people were constantly being attacked. They were being harassed. Some Christian organizations saw this as an opportunity to swoop in and try to convert the... This is a quote. This is a quote. They were trying to convert the heathen Chinese. Someone cut them off from talking? You didn't pronounce the last two letters back then. That's the word If it was a minority, you wouldn't pronounce the last two letters. (laughs) (laughs) One such attempt was featured in the drawing on the cover of Harper's Weekly in 1894, a drawing of... uh like pastor singing in the streets in Chinatown. So on the plus side, the missionaries did help teach people English, but with things being as bad as they were, the community, the Chinese community had to look to themselves for protection because there was safety in ethnic community. They helped the people who just got in from China to get used to life in America. During the depression, the Chinese at City Market were hit really hard. So the community there would pool its money into what was called a 
Hoi, and they would give it out to whatever families were struggling oh, at the wow. time. There are various organizations that were formed to help each other out, like the Wai Lung Kung Sa in 1890, and eventually all these separate organizations were united under the Chinese Consolidated Benevolent Association. CBA. Did you just say Curious Chinese? <laughs> <laughs> Curious Chinese Benevolent Association. <laughs> so they set up special schools for mm. Chinese children to go to after their regular school. By 1922, five of these such schools existed. Another sort of organization that existed were called Tongs. What's Tongs? Here we go. They were sort of community organizations. They were sort of brotherhoods. They were sort of gangs. Like a moose lodge? It's kind of like a moose lodge, but with like butterfly knives. And <laughs> they sound really nice, a butterfly lo- knives. Really painful. You try feeding them and... What are we talking about? You just gotta go to the hospital after. <laughs> they got a bite. Are we still talking about dragons? Only dragons. This whole th- I blanked out. Here be dragons. So the Tongs looked out for the interests of different Chinese families and businesses. They apparently had close ties to the LAPD also, who allowed them to run the Chinese jail on Apablasa Street and use it to punish Tong members as they saw fit. Oh boy. Unfortunately, separate Tongs sometimes... <laughs> Separate, separate measures. <laughs> separate tongs sometimes came into conflict with each other. So, there was a woman named Yat Ho, who had been a married woman in China. She was kidnapped and sold as an indentured sex servant to LA. So, on October 24th, 1871, Yat Ho's brother arrived in Chinatown from China, having been sent by the tong that she had belonged to to free her from this rival tong. He confronted a member of the rival tong on the Kaye, and a gunfight ensued. So, Yat Ho's brother chased the guy into the Coronel building building and then he was shot. So responding to the gunshots was an LAPD officer named Jesus Bilderain who got to the scene to find Yutho's brother dead on the ground and another gunman hiding out in this building. So Bilderain shot into the building and his fire was returned and he himself got shot so he called out for help. Responding to the call was a white guy named Robert Thompson who quickly got himself shot oh my God. <laughs> in the chest and he died a slow death over the next hour. And this is when it all started. <laughs> That wasn't... Oh, no. This is the tip of the racist iceberg. Oh, let's hear it. Okay, so words... My favorite kind of iceberg. (laughs) The kind that sunk the uh, Chinese Titanic. Words started to spread throughout the crowd that had gathered to watch what was happening. Did a guy die for over an hour? Yeah, look at him go. (laughs) And he's really going. So the word was spreading that the Chinese were attacking whites. They were killing the white man by wholesale. Whoa. Like Costco. (laughs) So slowly a mob started to grow. Now, at the time, the LAPD only had six officers. Not all of them were on duty today, and one of them was already down. (laughs) (laughs) That's five phone calls. You can't can't call a cop off duty. It's in their union. You also can't be Chinese. A second cop showed up on the scene named Marshal Francis Baker, who deputized a bunch of the men at random from the crowd, assigned them to surround the Coronel building to make sure the suspect didn't get away. Then he went home and let them deal with it. Oh, my. Hey, here's a gun. You're responsible, right? You look like an honest guy. Yeah, they got Otis and (laughs) Floyd the Barber deputized. Just shoot till something starts bleeding and then go home. (laughs) So then two other officers on the scene were George Gard and Emil Harris. Harris was actually one of the guys that went on to help capture Tiburcio Vasquez three years later. This is his training. Connection, yeah. Uh, Some training. Unfortunately, he wasn't much of a cop at this point, so the both of them just stood by and watched the mob grow over the course of three hours until it grew to 500 people of all social statuses and races, they put aside all their differences for just one night so that they could murder Chinese people. 
And 500 people at the time, that was a tenth of the entire population of the city came out. There were half-hearted attempts to disperse the crowd, but the people, they were just whipped into such a frenzy because of their open racism and because of what had just happened that they just wanted to kill Chinese people. They wanted to, any Chinese people will do. <laughs> so I don't know what set them off, but the mob unleashed. They climbed onto the roofs of buildings and they ripped them open with axes. Every single home and business on the Calle was looted. Some Chinese people were shot straight up. Others were lynched on anything that they could find. Archways, gateways, wagons that they turned upside down. Adults and children were killed. One of the victims was the local doctor, whose name ironically was Chin Li Tong. That's probably why I went after him. You! We don't know what that word means. You're dead. This guy, he pleaded for his life in English and Spanish. He said he would pay them if they stopped. He offered his diamond wedding ring to get them to stop. They didn't listen. They lynched him cut off his ears as souvenirs and then cut off his finger and took the ring. You know what what you know what the citizens were doing while all this was happening? No what? Cheering. They were standing on the sidelines cheering. Some of these people were prominent members of society who went on to hold political offices years later. <laughs> Not everybody was horrible, though. A guy named Robert Whitney, who was a former teacher who helped found USC, heard what was happening. He went to the scene of the mob. He would grab members of the mob, put a gun to their throat, and say, get out or I'll kill you. So he got he got some people to leave. That's Wasn't great. enough. <laughs> Eventually, Sheriff James Burns stopped the madness, and then the mob went drinking in the saloons. He must have clocked in first. <laughs> All right, it's 11 o'clock <laughs> on duty. God, I hate my job. <laughs> so the morning after the massacre, there were two rows of Chinese corpses lined up in front of the jailhouse. Between 17 and 22 Chinese people were killed, but the number I heard most often was 19. This was the largest mass lynching in American history. To add to that list of proud achievements for the city, it was also the first time L.A. as a city got any national attention. <laughs> The story was on the front pages of the real cities in the East who were appalled by what was happening in L.A. It was bigger news than the Chicago fire, which happened the same year. The Chinese government was not happy at all with the U.S. for letting this happen to their people. The city of L.A. decried the citizens for doing this and the law enforcement for not protecting its citizens. But the best part about all this... Nobody was punished. <laughs> Most of the witnesses they called on claimed that they couldn't recall any members of the mob. They didn't, like, they don't re- I don't remember any faces. It was a blur. Yeah, a big blur in the form of a murderous mob. Even better, Chinese people, much like the Native Americans, were not allowed to testify against white people, so their testimonies didn't matter. <laughs> Eventually, a man named Cameron Erskine Tom, who was a friend of Thomas Jefferson and a soldier in the Confederate Army oh, boy. and future 16th mayor of L.A., a decade <laughs> <laughs> a decade later, he managed to get 24 members of the mob accused of murder. Really? Conveniently, none of them were the higher-ups in society who were involved in this. Yeah. The trial began in March 1872. The defense was led by a man named Edward J.C. Kewin. He was a very expensive lawyer who was probably paid for by the high society members who had been part of the mob and made the other people take the fall for them. Another Confederate man. He, oh had been in, he was imprisoned in Alcatraz during the Civil War for trying to get California to secede from the union you know when people say they have like city pride uh, stuff like this is going to come to mind a long line of confederates (laughs) so it was hard to find any jury members also because so many people in LA were part of vigilance committees which were the groups that would start lynch mobs (laughs) 
And also a tenth of the population was involved in this. Yeah. An even bigger conflict of interest, the judge was Robert Whitney, who was the guy who was going around with oh, a gun trying to disperse Lord. the mob. So an even bigger, bigger conflict this of interest. This is an episode of Andy Griffith. <laughs> Get this. The judge didn't technically have his judging license. God damn it. God damn it. God damn it. Really? I just have this robe and this. Does anybody have a gavel? For the love of God. Ten of the guys got convicted of manslaughter, and a few of them spent some time in San Quentin, but through some legal trickery by the defense, the case then went to the Supreme Court of California, and all charges were dropped, and the case died forever. Also dead forever, the 19 innocent (laughs) Chinese people who were murdered. This was the last lynching in LA's disgusting history. These people, they got away with treating Chinese people like this, because there was nobody, there was nobody around who wasn't Chinese that was saying this is wrong. They were made to feel like it was okay to kill Chinese people because they're Chinese people. Their Chinese lives don't matter. So what's the big deal? So this incident is not very well known because LA at the time was trying to get a nice reputation, and they were trying to attract more white people to come move here so they swept this under the rug as quickly as they could. History tried to forget it because it's just so shameful and it's completely unforgivable. So let this be your friendly reminder from L.A. Meekly. We're disgusting. (laughs) There's a plaque on the sidewalk in front of the Chinese American Museum that tells the spot of where this massacre happened. And things did not get better from here for the Chinese. Here we go. Buckle up. Hold on to your... Click. My buckle. Hold on to my what? Your red envelopes from Chinese New Year. So 1882 brought with it the Chinese Exclusion Act, which forbid Chinese immigration and prevented the ones already here from becoming citizens. Awesome. This was the first law in U.S. history excluding an ethnicity of immigrants from entering the country. (laughs) As a result, local business owners in L.A. refused to hire Chinese workers. Then in 1892 came the Geary Act, which took the Exclusion Act and went a little bit further and required Chinese people to register themselves for a permit to be in the country, which they would have to have on them at all times or else they would be deported. And in 1893, the first Chinese person was deported by this law right here in L.A. So in 1913, then, the California Alien Land Law was passed. To prevent immigrants ineligible for citizenship from owning land. Problem is, the Chinese were already made ineligible for citizenship by the Chinese Exclusion Act, so now they were also not allowed to own land. They're just making up laws left and right. What What else can we take away from (laughs) this? What else could possibly happen to the Chinese people? Let me ask it. What else can possibly happen to the Chinese people? Nothing. They're fine. (laughs) November 6th. Oh, boy. 1885. Oh, I hate when you give specific dates. That means something bad's going to (laughs) happen. The little old community of Pasadena. Some white people went out one night, and they started throwing rocks through the window of a Chinese laundry. Of course. It's just another November night. So one of the rocks hit a lamp, which fell over and caught the building on fire. The Chinese people living in the building ran away while the white people proceeded to loot it. And then chase the Chinese people. (laughs) So the next day, the lovely people of Pasadena were angry with the Chinese for the fire, and they hanged an effigy of a Chinese person on the ashes of the burnt buildings. They were then given 24 hours to leave Pasadena, and more than 100 Chinese people were forced to leave downtown Pasadena and resettle to the area south of California Street and east of Fair Oaks. What else? Yes, what else? Oh, (laughs) in both 1886... And 1887, large parts of Chinatown were burned down by arsonists. The arsonists were never punished, and the Chinese people whose lives were destroyed got no insurance money, despite 
Literally everything going against them, though, the Chinese people still managed to thrive. Chinese culture was novel enough that Chinatown became a tourist destination. The herbalist services were very popular amongst the non-Chinese. In the late 1800s, they started to be invited to participate in the Fiesta de Los Angeles parade. In 1895, they were allowed to have public celebrations of the Chinese New Year with dragons. In 1898, a reverend named Ng Poon Chu, a.k.a. Wu Pan Zhou, Ooh, like you might that. know him as that, started the Wa Mai Sun Po, which is the Chinese-American morning paper. This was one of the first Chinese newspapers in the country. In 1904, Chinatown was visited by Dr. Sun Yat-sen as part of his global tour to get support for the Chinese Revolution, <laughs> and he would then go on to be the first president of the Republic of China. Yeah. He invited us to some parade or something. Yeah. I don't remember. So by, so by 1880, the Chinese population in L.A. was 1,169. Many more Chinese came to L.A. from San Francisco after the big earthquake in 1906. And by 1910, it was almost 3,000 Chinese people. At its peak between 1890 and 1910, Chinatown had spread across Alameda and took up 15 streets, 200 buildings. They had three temples. They had their own telephone system. There was even a Chinese opera house located between Ferguson Alley and March Assault Street. It was the largest Chinese community south of San Francisco, but all things must pass. <laughs> Ironically, it was a railroad that shut down Chinatown. LA wanted to build a new station for the new railroad that was coming to town, a union station. <laughs> what do we call it though? But what do we call it? <laughs> Let's call it Displaced Chinese People Station. I like the ring of that. <laughs> they chose the location they did because it was right next to the Pueblo Plaza and they thought that that would help promote this weird new idea that they wanted to brand LA with of having this romantic Mexican Spanish past but still being really white. And, and also ignore all those Chinese people. Yeah. So this was a chance for them to finally get rid of Chinatown or at least relocate it to a poorer part of the city so it wouldn't be such a central eyesore. There were disputes between the city and the Apoblasas and the Sepulvedas who owned the land that Chinatown was on. Mm-hmm. But on December 12, 1913, the Apoblasas sold their part of Chinatown for $310,000 to Southern Pacific Railroad. And on November 7, 1914, all the land east of Alameda was sold. And then on May 19, 1931, the courts approved moving forward with Union Station. The land sat for a little bit, but on the morning of December 23rd, 1933, the raising of Chinatown began. The Chinese were evicted from their properties, and since they couldn't own land and nobody wanted them, they didn't know where to go. They scattered around the city. Many of them moved to the city market area as mm-hmm. a haven. What was the old Chinatown is now 14 feet below the tracks of Union Station. In 1987, when they were building the underground metro, they uncovered covered a bunch of artifacts from Chinatown, many of which can be seen at the Chinese American Museum at 425 North Los Angeles Street, which is off of the plaza at the end of Olvera Street. It's on the street that used to be the Calle, and it's in the last surviving structure of old Chinatown. All looks lost for the Chinese, but hope came in the form of an engineer from USC named Peter Suhu Jr., who convinced the city that the Chinese could own and maintain their own property and become a self-sufficient community, so he helped the community raise money to relocate to a new Chinatown. Take it, Greg! Well, off the bat... I'm gonna go sleep. It was Peter Soho Sr. that did that. Uh, Peter Soho Jr., guess what? It was his son. Another junior. He ran Universal. <laughs> from, from a, for a good time. A tale of two towns! Or more specifically, a town in a city. So I'm gonna be talking about two people and two different attempts at creating a Chinese community in Los Angeles after old Chinatown was raised. They happened simultaneously... And although both had good intentions, one of them lacked an authentic touch necessary to not burn down. 
They were like competing community ventures. So we'll discuss Christine Sterling, a prominent Los Angeles socialite and civic leader. She was renowned for creating Alvaro Street. She was known as the mother of Alvaro Street. Uh, her project. The only mother of Alvaro Street is Mother Mary Superior. Blessed be he, she. Her American name is Christine Sterling. Um, <laughs> have you ever wondered to transfer over? I thought so. <laughs> I got a lot of apologies to make. <laughs> I've got to return a lot of candles from the 99 cent store. <laughs> Her project for the Chinese community was to be known as China City. The other would be known as New Chinatown or Chinatown on Broadway, which is the Chinatown we know now. Chinatown on Broadway. <laughs> project we're looking at. I love that show. <laughs> it's the Broadway stage of Chinatown. <laughs> and it was a project led by visionary LA native Peter Soho Sr., yeah, who was the president of the Chinese, I prefer his son. Who was the president of the Chinese American Association at the time? He was raised in Old Chinatown, hometown hero. hero. So uh, you already discussed how um, in the late twenties, early thirties, there was a weird fascination growing with Chinese culture. Yeah. And, and radio programs and early TV shows were broadcasting stories that took place in opium dens and seaports. <laughs> Everyone was saying Oriental. <laughs> Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express was first published in 1934 and it became really popular. Anime Wong was getting famous. Uh, you had fictional pulp characters like Charlie Chan and Fu Manchu. Oh yeah, Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu. I chose not to bring him up. <laughs> uh, I did mention the offensive stereotypes, right? Yeah. <laughs> there was I one think I we covered Fu Manchu. <laughs> it's hard to call these things exploitation, but it's really not. It's really not hard to call these things. Christine Sterling's first big project in Los Angeles, like I said, was Alvaro Street, which is going to get its own episode, but it's important for me to bring it up because it puts into context what kind of woman Christine Sterling was and what she saw for China City. So I kind of had to bring it up. The story goes that three years prior to it being erected, Sterling was walking around the area where the original Spanish outpost was, and it was really desolate. It was unpaved and it was muddy and all the old structures were broken down. She kind of understood that this spot had significance. Old, you know, Afia <laughs> Adobe was there. It's the oldest brick building in our city. So she had the I idea. I think I've been in there. Have you been in there? Yep. Hey, unless it's crumbled. I, I was somewhere. You were somewhere, weren't you? I crumbled it. <laughs> I just walked in there. I'm like, you know what? The cookie crumbles. <laughs> That's the way the Avila Adobe crumbles. <laughs> like a cookie. <laughs> like a cookie. Like a pan dulce. <laughs> so she had the idea to recreate a Mexican village in that spot and have it be a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. So she went full force like a busybody old lady with big ideas does. And she pushed city officials and business leaders to get the area going as a tourist attraction that could reflect the city's Mexican roots and influence. Three years of that pushing for it and it became a huge success and it's still a staple for any first time visitors of the city. The thing about it though is that Sterling and the many officials behind the project didn't consider involving the Mexican-American community. In Why, its would they? Why would they? They... <laughs> Yeah, why would they? Why would they? they didn't include the Chinese in movies about Chinese people. Why would they invite Mexican people to anything? We want it to be authentic, but not really. <laughs> authentic in like a white way. <laughs> did you say right or white? Both. <laughs> <laughs> so only later did Mexican-American business owners and merchants join in and they authenticated the process of what Alvaro she was kind of going for. But it, it took a while. Bootleg Dodgers. Bootleg Dodgers shirts. <laughs> Let's make sure you wear those dresses that we see in movies. To show how whitewashed I am, I never really, I don't think about Alvaro Street that much. After reading this, I kind of understand it now as like a Disneyland style regional exhibit, the way like New Orleans Square yeah, it's, or it's Critter Epcot Country. Center. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sliver of Epcot Center. Oh, but in blower Alvaro Street load. Uh, 
You kind of did. <laughs> so, Alberto Street is right across from Union Station, formerly Old Chinatown, like you brought up. And Christine Sterling is probably high off the success of Alberto Street. <laughs> so she thinks like, oh, who's the next voiceless ethnic community that can help? The Greeks? <laughs> the, Ethi- the Ethiopians, perhaps? Greek George's Ranch. <laughs> Sterling set out to create another tourist destination, but this time it would be Oriental style, which I kept reading and I, I still don't feel great about it. It was going to be the Chinese equivalent to Alberto Street, and it was going to be known as China City. She declared that the Chinese need a Chinatown, but again, failed to rally the actual Chinese community behind her or gain any insight into their needs. I keep hearing about a meeting that took place with the Chinese community leaders that keeps being referred to as a token meeting. They're just, hey, yeah, we, we met Chinese people once. <laughs> sure. Whatever. So another person concerned with the displacement of the Chinese community was Peter Soho Sr. So he, he, you know, of course, from the very beginning, cared a lot about his community and he knew that he had to relocate as close as possible. And it's funny that you're talking about wanting to move the Chinese out of the area by Union Station because they didn't really go that far. No, if you're really no. Union Station, it's like two I, blocks. I was and, thinking that, but I was like, well, maybe in like 1930, that was a huge distance. <laughs> but I can park at one and walk to the yeah, other. Yeah, it's almost preferred that you park at one and walk to the other. That's a smart move. Yeah. Suhu became an influential leader in the Chinese community at a very young age. He was able to speak Cantonese and English, and because of that, he became a spokesman. Show off. Show off. Who do you think he had? Bilingual in Los you Angeles? You get one, okay? You get one. <laughs> he didn't pick up Spanish. He's not that good. Because of his ability to speak both languages, being bilingual, he became the spokesperson for Chinatown and addressed a lot of American institutions like the Chamber of Commerce and the press. During the 30s, he made a lot of declarations to local papers about the demise of old Chinatown being premature. He was also very inviting towards customers and outsiders to come visit Chinatown. We have culture. We have an area. Please. Now with more culture. <laughs> it's not a red light district anymore. Please come by. He graduated, like you said, engineering from USC. He was one of the first Chinese Americans in that field. He was one of the first Chinese Americans to join the Department of Water and Power. Hmm. He was for reals. <laughs> hometown hero. His dedication to his community was total. Any project that was going to go forward to rebuild Chinatown, he was going to be part of it. So that's really good to have him on their side. You can already see how the stories are developing with these two different people. One is an engineer from <laughs> USC. One of them is the mother of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Early proposals were made for a new Chinatown location by George Eastman of Eastman Kodak. Oh. Yeah. Got support from the Chinese Chamber of Commerce and the City Council to develop a new Chinatown which would feature shops, restaurants, a temple, a theater, gardens, and a plaza, all with the Chinese architectural style. But this is all too costly to implement and all of Eastman's plans fell through. This is 1933. So this is when old yeah, Chinabound is being raised. Yeah. Do you just call it Chinabound? Chinabound. China bound for Chinatown. Good save. Thanks. <laughs> I have one in me every episode, and I used it really early. I heard Sterling started proposing the idea of China City as early as 1933 as well, while they were dismantling old Chinatown. I also read it was in 1935 that she pitched the idea. And I know, like, it's kind of dumb to worry about, like, a minute detail, but... That's a two-year gap. Well, it's, yeah, I, it's kind of like, do do I need to watch it like crumbled and nothing, or can I, or do I have the the hindsight to be like, oh, they're gonna need somewhere to go? Yeah, because there was like a a five-year gap between one Chinatown existing and the yeah, next one exactly. opening, so they were just like merry wanderers, as I like to think <laughs> of them. Only they weren't so happy. They were actually really sad. Uh, they didn't have a lot of rights either. They they didn't have the right to be sad. <laughs> <laughs> and a new law passed. I believe the two, Suhu and Sterling, were at one point trying to attempt to collaborate together on a single thing, and they just couldn't get a vision going. I think one wanted an authentic, oh, this is where everyone's going to go. And the other one's like, can we make it more for white people to come and visit? (laughs) And so, like, by 1935, they had announced they're going to separate their plans and work on two completely competing Hmm. ventures. It's like uh, Professor X and Magneto. Exactly. Or who are the Martin Luther... 
Martin Luther King and Magneto. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Professor X and Meg. Wait, that's what I just said. (laughs) Professor King and Malcolm Nito. Malcolm Nito. (laughs) Christine Shirley went out and began approaching high society business leaders for backing. One of the biggest names (laughs) to be included in this was Harry Chandler, the owner of the LA Times. Uh, Well, yeah, the owner of the LA Times. Of Um, Dorothy Chandler fame? Dorothy Chandler. You know, I didn't look into that. Oh, wait, no. Is he the inspiration for Chandler Bing? Yeah, Chandler Bing of Friends fame, the fictional character. Could he be any more of an inspiration? <laughs> I know. Could that. this be any more of a Chinatown? I hate you so much. Me too. I know Raymond Chandler when he came here. Uh, Is he the Dorothy Chandler? Affiliate? He might be Dorothy Chandler. <laughs> Could I be any more? <laughs> Harry Chandler, like I was saying, big supporter of this idea that Christine Sterling had. So much so that the dedicatory stone of the entrance is from the old Times building, the one that explodified. Call back to whatever episode that was. Monsters. Mons call back to monsters. By nineteen thirty five, Sterling was already putting together an idea of how she wanted to replace what was old Chinatown with an exotic atmosphere, exotic in quotes, atmosphere of the ch- of this Chinese village. Her vision was of quiet lotus pools, cafes, again a temple, charming oriental shops. Again, I don't like that word. Even with all the shops. Compa- shops. Don't they mean chops? <laughs> Even with all the comparisons to Alberto Street, I still have a difficult time kind of picturing the differences between China City and Chinatown. I just I like there's not a lot of pictures of China City. But one of the best and simplest descriptions of the place I read was American promoted Chinese operated amusement center designed to attract tourists. And this was China City. City. This was China City. That really sums it up really well to me. In the same blurb, they also refer to it as Oriental Oasis in the midst of Los Angeles's oldest section. That's catchy. That's catchy. Vague (laughs) the way they like it. It was to be bound by Main Street, Ord Street, Macy Street, which is now Cesar Chavez Avenue, and New High Street. I think I got an idea where it is. But I never, I didn't like write down any of the shop's name, but I know I parked there a lot. So I'll leave a map online with pictures on our blog. But I kind of have an idea. Of where you park. <laughs> it's like a two block radius from what I understand. On the other side of the block, the new Chinatown project was underway as well. In April of 1937, the LA Chinatown Project Association and a number of guests and leading citizens, including Peter Suhu, met with Herbert Lampan, who worked with the Santa Fe Railway and was a big supporter of the Chinese community. They all met at the uh, the old, mispronounced Tui Far Lo restaurant, one of the oldest Chinese eateries in Los Angeles. Lampan was essential in securing the land for the Chinese community so he could help rebuild Chinatown. Like I said, he worked for the Santa Fe Railway Company, which a few episodes ago we learned had its own hospital, later to be called the Linda Vista Hospital, oh, which yeah. was now a haunted retirement home. <laughs> I don't know if he had anything to do with that, but... He insisted it be haunted. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to need a lot of gang members killed here in the 80s. Just to, I know it's a long time away, almost 50 years, but I need you to take care of that for me. Uh, no, not Tong members. <laughs> gang members. Gang members. <laughs> he was the one who bought the land right there where New Chinatown or Chinatown is now. The Los Angeles Chinatown Project Association, which has one big name, planned fundraising, site acquisition, design, and construction all at this meeting. Money was raised among the Chinese Americans without bank financing or loans. No land acquisition or construction could proceed without upfront collection of all required funds. The project was almost entirely funded by the Chinese community itself. It was really by Chinese for Chinese. Many of the shop owners from old China... <laughs> Not nah, doesn't have that same fubu no. sound. No. You know that fubu <laughs> sound you're looking for? <laughs> well, listen it's, to th- it's your cousin, Mubu. <laughs> Mubu, Fubu. <laughs> <laughs> the shop owners from Old Chinatown put money forward to reopen their shops 
in this new project that was emerging, but uh, it was kind of pricey. So some of them had to go over to China City, which was kind of, I don't want to say a put down. I keep putting down China City. It was, I mean, it, it accepted Chinese community, the Chinese community, but it wasn't the same as being in New Chinatown. It was a legitimacy thing. They got Earl Webster and Adrian Wilson as the architects for New Chinatown. And the goal was to build 62 units over one square block. But of course, they expanded over time. Three groups of buildings were constructed along Jinling Way for the initial phase of the project, which is a little by the Alpine uh, Rec Center. So Harry Chandler and Christine Sterling were successful in raising the financial backing to move forward with their project, as was Prita Suhu with a connection to Lampan. Over the next two to three years of construction, a war of words between the two projects played out in the city's papers. Each project tried to paint the other project as doomed to fail. Christine Sterling claimed that the new Chinatown would not be accessible to the poorest members of the Chinese-American community, which wasn't necessarily false, and that Suhu and the Chinatown Project Association lacked the business foresight to pull the project off. While Suhu and his group claimed that only Chinese-Americans could successfully build and create an authentic replacement for old Chinatown, which also wasn't necessarily false. Both areas finished with their projects roughly around the same time, June 1938. But China City held its opening ceremony three weeks prior to New Chinatown. They got them by three weeks. Can you believe it? Yeah. Yeah, they were faster workers. It was smaller. They were, I mean, obviously, why would you even like, guess that? I mean, like, were you stupid? Were you brain dead? <laughs> you bag of batteries? China City opened and it was a huge event. And the LA Times, whose owner helped back the entire project, described... The event, uh, 10,000 Southern Californians bid a smiling hello last night to New China City. They thronged the cafes and shops. They ate Chinese delicacies and purchased coolie hats, fans, oh. idols, miniature temple images, etc., etc. Coolie hats. From that day on, they were able to sustain a decent crowd coming in and checking it out. So good for them. The opening day for New Chinatown, which is later that month, was a big event as well. And it contained actual Asians. Real live, <laughs> Real Asians, live Asians in Los Angeles? I don't Come believe on. it. No, they were all kicked out. Celebrities, dignitaries, and members of the community crowded into the central plaza, which is now the main plaza of Chinatown. Not where Fu Chao is. It's across the street from Fu Chao. A boisterous band played in Let's front of... Let's just go eat at Fu Chao. <laughs> well, I'm trying you to say... You know, Rush Hour is filmed there. Did you know that? I refuse to acknowledge that. A Rush Hour 2 kind of guy, I see. I'm a Shanghai Nights kind of guy. <laughs> a boisterous band played in front of the west entrance, which faced Hill Street, which was then known as Castello Street. The governor, Frank Merriam, was there, and he unveiled a plaque dedicated to the Chinese laborers who helped build California. Really nice. Peter Suhu and Herbert Lampan are both listed on the plaque as co-founders of Chinatown, which I think is kind of neat. Hmm. New Chinatown was one of the first open-air walking malls in the country. A central plaza featured an arcade of shops, which I guess is what you call that. It's not the same thing. They come in arcades. Yeah, they come in arcades, yeah. <laughs> a unit of shops is known as an arcade that's yeah. one arcade many of the sh- and a pairing of chinatowns is called- <laughs> i got nothing it's called a uh, los angeles good good one la meekly <laughs> any chance we get we'll bring it up los angeles los angeles did you say los angeles <laughs> i'm taking again a phone call here uh, los angeles on the line here's an oscar for being the best yeah i got 400 angels here i don't know where to send them well city of angels los angeles of course <sighs> <sighs> Many of the shopkeepers had moved their businesses and reopened from old Chinatown, those who could afford to anyways. The architects behind the plaza, Webster and Wilson, wanted to create a family atmosphere which was inviting, which is why it's an open-air plaza. The design of the plaza was set to reflect the influence of traditional Chinese architecture with an emphasis on the forbidden city of Beijing. Ooh. Don't go there, it's forbidden. <laughs> Don't recreate it, it's forbidden. There was a real aim to please Chinese and Chinese-Americans of all generations. 
which was really nice. The streets of the plaza have very specific names. Jinling Wei was named after the, the street of golden treasures in Beijing. Zhongqing Road refers to Chiang Kai-shek, the president of the Republic of China at the time. Meiling Wei was named after his wife, the first lady, if you will. Hmm. Sun Mun Wei is attributed to Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who was the founder of the Republic of China. That's the guy China. who came to visit. Yeah, that's the guy who invited us. <gasps> <laughs> There's also a stream named after Herbert Lampham called Lay Min Wei. How do you say his name? Lay Min Wei. Lay Min Wei. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Stupid Americans. There's an inscription at the top of the West Gate, which means gathering the best of Los Angeles, which was translated by the founding members as cooperate to achieve, which I think is really neat, hmm. even though these two uh, rival <laughs> towns could not cooperate to achieve. Yeah, th- I was thinking, is it required that at all times there needs to be two Chinatowns, like a Sith Lord and his apprentice at all times <laughs> at in all the city? Times. Yeah, you need a rival. There needs to be a rivalry yeah. at all times. It's what drives the Chinese. China City had street names like Dragon Road and Shanghai Street. I don't get it. Yeah, I once fought a dragon. Gave him the old Shanghai. The old Shanghai Shanghai Daniel. Shanghai Daniel. They call you uh, Tokyo Greg, though. (laughs) I didn't want to say anything. He's the king of the Tokyo... Chick, chicky, boom, boom, chicky, boom, chick, chicky, Tokyo Greg. (laughs) So, uh, New Chinatown had legitimate Chinese names as their streets within the plaza. China City had names like uh, Shanghai Street. (laughs) Dumpling Way. Dumpling Way. China City featured things like a lotus pond, restaurants. It also had a temple. They also had Chinese rickshaw rides. It had a two-gateway entrance, one of which had a large stone wall designed after the Great Wall of China. (laughs) To keep the Chinese people from New Chinatown out. (laughs) Yeah, we're not about... We're not about merging this yeah. community together. Their sign on the other said community against all. <laughs> <laughs> Much of the materials used for the construction were donated. Like I said, there was a dedicatory stone used from the old uh, Alley Times building. <laughs> there was pink sandstone from the old federal Those building. infernal machines! <laughs> there was pink sandstone from the old federal building, which was used for the gate, the stairs, and the wall. Bamboo poles were uh, donated from the parks department. Cobblestones were donated from the streets department. China City also consisted of a lot of narrow, mysterious alleys that contrasted mm. the open-air plaza of New Chinatown. It was to reflect the city alleys in China, which you definitely want to recreate. They recreated that for almost 100 years in old Chinatown. And, <laughs> what happened? And they t- yeah, they didn't like that. <laughs> this reminds me of the street down the street where everyone was stabbed. Their main court was called... And lynched. Their main court at China City was called the Court of Four Seasons. And from the photos, actually looked really neat. Although Disneyland-like, it looks really neat. <laughs> it had a pagoda which housed the Lotus Inn restaurant. The Chung Dat Lo restaurant was known for its village-style fried shrimp and whore nut meal for 25 cents. What was the last thing you said? Whore nut meal. Whore nut meal. Horn oh. nut meal. So the Chung Dat Lo restaurant also ran a delivery business that supplied Chinese food around the neighborhood. No confirmation on whether this was the first instance of Chinese food delivery in our city. Hmm. Hmm. The main plaza would also feature the House of Wang. This requires some explanation. To help, flesh, <laughs> to help flesh out the Chinese-style architecture, a donation was made from MGM's Louis B. Mayer with set pieces from the 1937 Hollywood blockbuster The Good Earth, which you brought up. <sighs> A film set in China with very few Chinese people. <laughs> Life imitating. They had yellow skin. <laughs> oh my god. In MGM film, The Guys Who Treated Fitzgerald So Well, The Good Earth was filmed on a five anchor ranch in Chatsworth and made into a replica of a Chinese farmland. Did you say that? No. The author. <laughs> and neither should you. The author, Pearl S. Buck, and the film's producer, Irving Thalberg, both envisioned in all Chinese or Chinese-American cast, hopefully the star anime Wong. But the studios pushed for an American cast, fearing that the general milk-faced public would kill themselves without an accurate Anglo portrayal of China. 
So they hired Palmer. Who do I root for? <laughs> Whose side do I, am I supposed to take? I just want to beat this film up. I don't know. There's something in me. Oh, it's bugging me. They hired Paul Mooney, not the comedian, <laughs> as Wang Lung, and his wife Olan was played by Louis Rayner with offensive makeup provided by Jack Don, who did makeup for Wizard of Oz. Uh. Apparently, this was the first time in film that American actors were given a makeup to appear as if Asian. So after they cast Paul Mooney, not the comedian, they approached <laughs> Anna Mae Wong to play the wife, the role of Olan. Because of the Hayes Code, anti-miscegenation rules required that his wife also be American. So they offered the role of Lotus, the main character's second wife, something of a seductress, to which Anna Mae Wong responded, You're asking me, with Chinese blood, to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture <laughs> featuring an all-American cast portraying Chinese character. Stick it to him, Wong. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Boy, howdy, I'll take it. <laughs> Anyways, the House of Wang is the set from the Good Earth rebuilt in China City. It's the home of the film's main character, Wang Lung, House of Wang. Mm. Anything not from the film was furnished from China and imported. For 10 cents, visitors could take a photo with the house and the workers dressed in Chinese attire. And anime Wong put a willow tree in New Chinatown in the plaza next to the uh, one of the pools there. She like planted the tree herself. I think when she passed away, one of the studios put another willow tree to dedicate to Anime Wong, which is really cool. So there's two willow trees there. I don't know if hers is still there or not. I know the one that the studio put, I think, is still there. The studios took out hers so they could put theirs. It's a more American tree. (laughs) It's a lot paler. (laughs) It's got very little culture, but, you know, I feel comfortable around it. (laughs) China City residents were sometimes recruited to play extras in Hollywood films, and this was taken care of by Hollywood recruiter Tom Grubbins, who cast extras in The Good Earth, as well as some Charlie Chan episodes, as well as many live opera and stage shows that he produced and that w- w- would take place in China City. Uh, he also owned the Asiatic Costume Company on Los Angeles Street, which from the sound of it rented out four Asian American productions or American productions that required Asian costumes. So he was in charge of all of that. He also like produced a lot of live plays that would happen like I think nightly at China City. In front of the House of Wang was a stand where for 25 cents you could take a rickshaw ride like I mentioned and have a souvenir photo for an extra charge. The rickshaw rides were kind of a big deal like in 90% of all the articles and books I read they're like oh they all had rickshaw rides. They had rickshaw rides. Greg, they had rickshaw rides. I mean, I get it. They had rickshaw rides. I get it, book. <laughs> book, listen. I got a lot of reading to do. You got to stop bringing up these rickshaw rides. Some claim that American workers could only operate the rickshaws. Some claim that it was preferred that Chinese workers pull it. Either way, kind of offensive. That being said, though, I do want a rickshaw ride. New York has carriage rides through Central Park, while in old LA, we have a rickshaw ride through construction sites. Other features of China City were there was a Chinese astrologer named Dr. Feng Po Chi, worked out of the Rainbow Tea Room and Art Shop. There was also an Italian fortune teller in China City in a Chinese-themed setting working out of a stand called the House of Tom. The house is... The the photo of that is really funny, by the way. <laughs> Welcome to the House of Tom. House of Tom. <laughs> right here in China City. We gotta eat spaghetti with uh, chopsticks. It's a really funny photo. When I passed, I'm like, did I just... What? <laughs> the steps of heaven in the middle of the plaza led to the court of lotus pools, which split a long avenue of like a series of gift shops and restaurants, not an arcade. They also had a temple there, the temple of Quan Yin, goddess of mercy. Outside the main doors, a young man named John Yi would offer visitors incense so they can go in and make a wish to the goddess. The sign out front read, enter this temple with the same respect you would show in your own house of worship, which makes me think... How many racial comments before we had to put this sign up? There was a lot of restaurants. Yeah, like they're in their own home. There was a lot of restaurants for visitors, but one stood out to me that I had to bring up to you. Fuke's China Burger, (laughs) which sold burgers topped with bean sprouts. Yum? Great. My, I love hamburgers and my favorite part of eating Chinese food on them, the bean sprout. (laughs) 
Not chow mein, not a little bit of, no, the bean sprout. <laughs> the humble bean sprout. <laughs> One China burger, please. China burger. China, a great addition to LA's culinary history. Next to- It's like lettuce. <laughs> Did you say cheeseburger? No, China burger. And no, it's not offensive. Mary Pickford thumbed her nose at this abomination. Where's the chili? Where's the chili? Which is the thing she would say all the time. She was the where's the beef lady eventually. Of her. That's, if you recognize that old lady, like, how do I know her? Mary Pickford, the actress. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's Mary Pickford. <laughs> it's Mary Pickford. The other, lady was the, silver Elsa, screen. the other lady was Elsa Lanchester. <laughs> Next to the China Burger, Fouquet's China Burger, was <laughs> a place you. called the Chinese Junk Cafe, which had a ship theme. I feel like I'm talking about the Venice Amusement Pier sometimes <laughs> when I'm reading this stuff. The Junk Cafe was a bar and restaurant inspired by a pirate fleet out of Mukao, which was led by a Chinese woman. They also had a kid's opium den and daycare center, a baby bank, <laughs> what? A, I'm kidding. <laughs> the face he made was priceless, though. My kid's too active. Where can I take him? Kid's opium dead. I can't afford daycare. <laughs> I just want him to uh, just pass out for a while. <laughs> Shanghai Street featured a stage where, again, Grubbins would have his operas, dances, carnival stuff, magic tricks. There was a three-long dragon procession as well as pageants for like a two-day, two-night festival called China Nights or China Night. All proceeds went to secure war bonds. We'll get back to... China and the military mm-hmm. stuff. Then, February 20th, 1939, less than a year after opening, a large part of the district burned down in a mysterious fire. Look at that. Just it's like the Venice, a mystery. Just like the Venice Museum appears. <laughs> it's not clear whether it was due to elements involved in hasty construction or possibly a resentful old Chinatown arson, like many suspected. But almost everything bore damages from this fire, even the rickshaws, Daniel. Not the rickshaws. Even the rickshaw. Come on. If there's one thing a rickshaw can't handle... Fire. Fire. Arson. Of the transportation vehicles, it's the most Frankenstein of them all because it's afraid of fire. Anywho, (laughs) I really wanted that one to work. I really, in my heart, wanted that one to work. Uh, Stretch Armstrong. (laughs) My arm hurts. (laughs) In May of 1939, Union Station opens up and it had a grand opening parade. I've read that there was a lot. There was a float acknowledging contributions that the Chinese railroad workers made. I've also read that there was not one. Either way, for the parade to happen in that general area, kind of salt on the wound. (laughs) Despite original claims by Sterling that she was... MSG on the wound. (laughs) Which is pretty good. It's not a bad feeling, really. It makes you want another wound 30 minutes later. <laughs> That's, uh, can we add that to the tally of offensive things from the Native American episode? We're not going to have separate tallies? Or is it going to be one giant tally? Uh, one giant tally we of offensiveness. We are at, like, there's no more Roman numerals for tally us. Tally me banana. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like the tally marks in Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> I don't know if there's actually tally marks in there. I just wanted to sound <laughs> smart for you. You sound very smart. You might be thinking of the man in the iron mask. But it's still smart. <laughs> I might be thinking of Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> you know, that might be considered a modern day. <laughs> Anyways, uh, despite, despite um, original claims that Stilling would not rebuild China City after it burnt down, she went for it. Chinatown would remain a distinct part of the downtown landscape for another decade. Guess what happens then? In 1941, Chinatown led the Moon Festival, a three-day celebration which brought in about 30,000 people in attendance. It's like the original Woodstock. Yeah, it was original Woodstock. Uh, Hendrix was there. Richie Havens was there. Anyone who said they had a good time wasn't really there. They must have been somewhere else because it was miserable. If you remember Moon Festival, you were probably there. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Things didn't get too crazy. It was actually kind of boring, Moon Festival. 
Anyways, at this very boring moon festival that went on for three days and everyone said it was great, uh, they raised money for the United China Relief, which was giving money and supplies to Chinese refugees from World War II. And of course, Anime Wong participated. Go Wong. In December of that year, 1941, I think you brought this up, the Japanese attacked the naval base on Pearl Harbor. After that, there was a lot of resentment towards Asians, referred to podcast that time forgot. The CCBA, the Chinese Consolidated Bene- Benevolent. Benevolent Association, sold 4,000... 000- the curious Chinese boys that are adults. <laughs> we are the boys that are adults, but we're not Chinese. <laughs> Anyways, the CCBA sold 4,000 buttons that simply read China to Chinese Americans just Simple. to distinguish them from the Japanese. So they wear a button that said China. Wow. <laughs> you know who else had to wear things that <laughs> would differentiate them? That's horrible. It is. Which I'm sure Japanese Americans living in California who had nothing to do with the bombing of Pearl Harbor were kind of like, shut up. <laughs> Just stop. We, that's a bean. Or maybe they bought them. <laughs> Leave me alone. Imagine being Japanese and coming home to your parents and you had a China button. They're like, Huh, what's that about? Nothing. You just see who's going to be here a little bit longer. Uh, there's a photo of a guy at work wearing a sort of like a back patch on his work jacket that says, me Chinese, please, no Jap. Just want to make sure you guys knew. Uh, offensive to two cultures there. <laughs> Members of the Chinese community joined a protest in Long Beach in 1938 to boycott against the sale of scrap iron to Japan. So there was like a growing resentment between Chinese and Japanese people in California. Mm. I which wonder you also, why. I wonder why, which you brought up already. During World War II, the Chinese American men in Chinatown formed the California State Militia Chinese Reserve to show their patriotism in the face of anti-Asian sentiment. Sadly, in April of 1945, Pierre Suhu passed away to a cerebral hemorrhage. His funeral procession was half a mile long. It traveled through the streets of Chinatown and it went all the way to East Adams, which is like, I believe, on Western, off like the 10th freeway, which which is East Adams is where the city market Chinese community oh, was. That- so they probably wanted to... Yeah, to bridge the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It is interesting. Then in 1948, China City burned down again. <laughs> the second fire proved to be a setback that they could not rebuild from. Again, this cause of the Arsons fire... Arsons come in twos. It's true. You're uh, right. Theory formulated and proven right now. Old Chinatown, China City. China, China City twice. Twice. LA Public Library twice. Twice. I think some of the piers did some I of I think each pier burned down twice. Really? Yeah, except for POP, which burned down. Well, it was burned down after being closed for many years. Is there some sort of Illuminati that... <laughs> you have to sacrifice a, a landmark, a growing twice. landmark. Twice. <laughs> you have to sacrifice a growing landmark twice. To the lizard people. To the lizard people to appease them, to keep them out of the tunnels so we can keep stuff down there. We just want to keep our archives down there. Christine Sterling was living comfortably at 935 Chavez Ravine Road when she was evicted along with many Mexican and Italian families that lived in that area to make way for Dodger Stadium, which is another episode. <laughs> to think a woman like that getting dislocated, relocated, dislocated. I mean, anyone could get dislocated. <laughs> It, it, it was very easy. Accidents happen. Accidents happen. Guess where she moved after that? Avia Adobe on the street. She lived there. That's huh? where she died. That's weird. She lived there. That crumbly old place that I crumbled? Yeah, the place that you crumbled. <laughs> she was part of that crumble. That's why she's dead, because of you. Oh my god, I crumbled her to death. You crumbled the mother of Avia Street to death. I crumbled the Mother Mary. You just wanted oh, too many Dios hugs. mio. <laughs> just hearing you say that brought so much delight to me. I wasn't <laughs> expecting that. Anyway, she's dead. <laughs> She lived to be 82 years old. She uh, died in 1963. So she got to see China. She was a little crumbly herself then towards the end. Too many hugs. <laughs> the last remnant of China City is a neon sign across from Philippe's, refer to that episode, <laughs> that hangs above a door and simply reads Shanghai Street. It's still there. I think it's still there. I read that it was still there. but I haven't It's not still there. Yeah, it's, 
it, I don't know. I think I was thinking of a sandwich. Even though China City was blatantly a tourist attraction, it did supply many Chinese Americans with jobs, and it created a sense of community for American-born Chinese youth. Sterling was quoted really early in the project as saying, the new China City will give these Chinese new opportunities to preserve their racial and cultural integrity by bringing them together in one district. Even though the stuff in the area was fake, the bonding that happened was real, which sounds really corny, but it was true. <laughs> China City provided the space for those who, for whatever reason could not or did not want to be part of New Chinatown. And the workers and the families of China City bonded and gained a sense of community where it wouldn't have happened in different parts of the city, probably. The same year as the China City Fire, 1948, the West Plaza of New Chinatown was constructed, now known as only Chinatown. It was open as an extension of Central Plaza and offered more commercial and gallery spaces. This is the lot where Fu Chao is, where a certain Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker film was shot, which I refuse to name. If you go to this plaza today, there's still a lot of art. <laughs> Chris Tucker wasn't in that. Come on. He, he probably was a gaffer or something. <laughs> if you go to this plaza today, they still have all the art gallery spaces still there. Throughout the years, the Chinese-American community has been continuing to fight for the rights and needs of Chinatown and the people who live and work within it. Everything from more traffic lights after a local hit and run to better health care to stronger financial support to deal with city cutbacks. In 1959, the LA Chinatown Democratic Club was the first Chinese-American political club to be started in Southern California. And here's some other interesting facts I found while doing research. I can't tell you how excited I am about this one. <laughs> It's so strange how excited I was. The Phoenix Bakery, are you familiar with the Phoenix Bakery? Yes. And the Cafe Bank are related. Businesses are people. Phoenix Bakery was owned by F. Chow Chan. If you don't know the Phoenix Bakery, it's a local landmark and it's noted for little creation, the strawberry whipped cream cake. Yes, go get one. They're very good. Eh. After co-founder F. Chow Chan's application for a savings and loan institution was denied. Yeah, that sounds delicious. Isn't it good? When people get rejected from their <laughs> from their bank applications, it's oh Oh, I'll live for another day. He got rejected for the umpteenth time, and he was advised by a law professor that he and a group of people who owned and operated Phoenix Bakery, that they should apply for a commercial bank charter instead. As a result, Cathay Bank became the first Chinese bank in LA, meeting the banking needs for the community. Chow and the Associates first led the way with the Cathay Bank and later the East-West Federal Savings Bank, two of the oldest Chinese-American financial institutions in California. This was in 1962. So the same guy who opened and owned Phoenix Bakery is the same guy who started Cathay Bank. Hmm. I was I, I love that. What goes better than finance and cream puffs? How you can pay for the cream puffs? How you can pay for the cream puffs? <laughs> Answer me that. How you can pay for the cream puffs? <laughs> While filming the Green Hornet, the actor who played Cato in the series, an actor named Bruce Lee. Mm-mm. I don't know. You must be thinking of Jet Lee. Bruce Lee at a training studio on College Street and would use the local Alpine Rec Center. Which, where I saw two basketball games when I was in high school, and I thought, I could get out of here. One of these students of his was Sharon Tate, who was uh, training for a 1969 film, The Wrecking Crew. Huh. Later that year, she got famous for something else. Karate didn't save her. <laughs> what? What's funny about that? It's hard to do karate when you're pregnant. Also, Chuck Norris and Ginger from Gilligan's Island were in this. I thought you were going to say Chuck Norris beat up uh, Ginger from Gilligan's <laughs> <laughs> Two Gingers. During the height of the Vietnam War, there was a big Chinese-American push to get America out of the war. They held protests up and down Broadway. The Vietnam War and the Cambodian genocide led to waves of refugees coming to the U.S. with Ronald Reagan. The actor <laughs> was very, very uh, big in helping. Jerry Lewis. The-, <laughs> the Southeast Asian community came into Chinatown and neighboring areas and quickly set up shop, most notably on College Street. 
and added their own culture and languages to the mix of an already diverse area. The populations increased because of the refugees as well as the immigrants whose arrival was allowed by the Immigration Act of 1965, which raised the total number of visas for immigrants from Asia to 170,000, with a max cap of 20,000 per Asian country. Keep in mind, in 1943, Chinese Exclusion Act permitted only 105 Chinese immigrants annually to enter the U.S. and obtain naturalization. In 20 years, it's a big jump. In 1982, the California State Legislature passed the Chinese roast duck bill, which allowed pecking duck to be hung at a room temperature for four hours after cooking, which apparently was an issue uh, that many restaurant owners had with the city food inspectors who weren't fond of establishments that liked to kill animals in front of customers and then hang prepared meat like they were curtains. <laughs> they weren't too big on that, but, uh, you know, they fought for their culture and they were able to hang those pecking duck now right in the window. I can't not include that. In 1993, Michael Wu was the first Asian American to run for mayor of LA. He didn't win, but Wu was the first Asian American elected to LA City Council who served between 1985 to 1993. In 2001, the Dragon Gateway that hangs over Broadway and Cesar Chavez was installed that was designed by Robert Mock. The gateway symbolizes good luck and fortune. In 2003, the Chinese American Museum opened up. In June of 2008, New Chinatown, which is now Chinatown, celebrated seventh anniversary and in three years come summer they'll be celebrating their 80th so we should be there for that at the 70th anniversary the evening kicked off with the lindy hop swing dancing and a 30s fashion show where what's was more, i what's more chinese than that <laughs> what's more chinese than, than the, the lindy, lindy hop hop <laughs> hop hop that's hop louis hop, 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 drinks hop, right now hip hop if you hip the hip hip <laughs> they just had uh, a big Chinese New Year celebration that neither one of us could attend this year. Nope. Nope. But I, I do have some confetti cannons waiting for me. And I've got 400 pounds of poppers that I'm going to dump on your house. We're going to burn some buildings down. <laughs> we're going to contribute our uh, burning effigies to the lizard people <laughs> to get more listeners. The Chinese community is very supportive of each other because they had to be. Because That's nobody true. else wanted to at first. Nope. Chinatown today yes. is next on the gentrification hit list. Mm-hmm. The current Chinatown is becoming very trendy, but not very Chinese. <laughs> There's huge housing complexes that are planned for the area. There's a lot of art galleries. There was a cat cafe there last year oh, for a little bit. Oh, that's in Chinatown? It was the cat fe. You broke me. Go ahead. But the food, Greg. The food. <laughs> Did I mention Fu Chow? Yeah, they got the best Chinese food in town. Fu Chow. Fu Chow. The, the food is left over from the set of Rush Hour. <laughs> All catering stuff left over. <laughs> it's really lasted them. There's good places to eat in Chinatown that are popping up. They aren't Chinese, though. There's not Chinese places that are popping up. There's po' boy places, oh, lobster yeah. roll places. There's trendy coffee and ice cream shops. Thai places, Vietnamese, Japanese. A lot of former food trucks are opening up brick and mortar places there because the rent is cheaper than in other parts of the city. Here's a little insider tip from LA Meekly. You're good friends, Daniel. And that's all. The the best place to go now for really good Chinese food is the San Gabriel Valley. It's not that big of a secret. So the San Gabriel Valley has a huge Chinese population. Their Chinese community was growing sort of parallel to the one downtown. Mm -hmm. But in the 1970s, a city planner named Fred Xia aggressively marketed Monterey Park as the new place for Chinese immigrants to come move to. He branded it as the Chinese Beverly Hills. And in 1990, it became the only U.S. city with an Asian majority. And Asians are now the majority in over six places in the San Gabriel Valley, most of those people being Chinese. So in 2012, of the 10 places in the U.S. with the largest Chinese populations, 
eight of them were in the San Gabriel Valley. (laughs) The median income in San Marino, which is over there, is Mm -hmm. almost double that of Beverly Hills. Um, It's a very nice area, too. Well, it's... Why don't you move there, then? (laughs) They don't have enough palm trees. They got a lot of big trees. I can't... So more than twice as many of the immigrants that are coming into California right now are coming from Asia than that of Latin America. So the Chinese community, after everything that they've been through, they're doing okay right now. Uh, Even though the San Gabriel Valley has its own problems with the minority Asian groups like the Vietnamese and the Filipinos, they're living in poverty still. And the white people that are still around there are still worried about, they're freaking out that there's so many Asian people around. (laughs) Here's another weird thing that's going on there. They have these like houses where pregnant Chinese women will come over there from China to give birth so that their kids will have US citizenship. So it's sort of a weird thing. Anyway, eat the food that's over there. It's really good. Two separate thoughts, but I want to put them right together. Siamese twins. Hey, come on. Oh, 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 that's not China. That's all right. You can say that. I'm starving now. Summing up. I know. Talking about all those Chinese women giving birth is making me really hungry. Where can a guy eat some Chinese placenta around here? (laughs) I know a place. It's called Fucho. Thus far, the most horrible history uh, in this city that I've ever heard. Yeah, it's it's not, not to make some sort of weird competition between who had it worst in history in Los Angeles, but uh, that's a pretty bad one. Yeah. That's, that, cool. that ranks up there if we're ranking them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Chinese people got it worst and then white people got it second. Because they had to make the difficult calls in all these situations. That's not easy on anybody. It's very taxing. <laughs> By the way, they... Speaking of taxing... <laughs> If Chinatown is one of the first all Chinese controlled areas on the West Coast, why is it so cheap to rent there for white people? Um, and that's been LA <laughs> uh, One thing that we didn't mention is that uh, since this Chinatown, the new Chinatown was pre-planned, yeah. I read that it's the only one in the country that was didn't just happen naturally. Yeah. It was like, this is Chinatown. We're making this. We're Chinatown. making this Chinatown. Yeah, it was very controlled, but it, you know, after what happened with old Chinatown, we're going <laughs> to keep we an need eye a on little this one. control. Yeah. It's like I'm, a second baby. Like, oh, the first one is a mess, but this is a middle child. Oh, we're going to, we're going to kind of watch what we're doing this time. Final thoughts. I wish I was Chinese. I think we can all say that we wish we were Chinese. Or at least for this month, I wish I was Chinese. Whatever <laughs> oh, last we, month. Right? Last, excuse me, last month. Whatever we do next month. I'm going to wish I was that. (laughs) Do the stuff that we need you to do so we can keep doing this. Leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at LA Meekly. We have a blog where we post stuff that corresponds to each episode. It's lameekly.tumblr.com. Like us on Facebook. Allie Meekly. Email us suggestions for new episodes or any questions or corrections or just hate mail or uh, Allie.meekly at gmail.com. Or just send us a message on Twitter or Facebook. Much easier. Or, you know, write it in a review on iTunes. Call me. Yeah, call me. Leave your phone numbers, everybody. Yeah, text, text me. Yeah, really, really late at night, though. As late as possible. Yeah, when our parents are asleep. Yeah, they, yeah, they don't know. know. They don't know. They don't know. They think my phone's off. They only think I have one. I like one to four. Oh, my God, you're right. Yeah. My phone isn't off at night. I'm playing that snake game where he's chasing the little dots. Anyway, <laughs> that's been L.A. Meekly, burning down Chinatown since 2013. It's a nightcap. Yeah, speaking of a nightcap. Have you seen my nightcap? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of nightcap, I need some candy.